Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. At whose behest does the mind think? Who bids the body live? Who makes the tongue to speak? Who is that effulgent being that directs the eye to form and color and the ear to sound? The self is the ear of the ear mind of the mind, speech of the speech. He is also the breath of the breath and the eye of the eye. Heaven, having given up the false identifications of the self with the senses and the mind, and knowing the self to be Brahman, the wise on departing this world become immortal. Now that's the beginning of the Kina Upanishad. And the Upanishads are excerpts and uh, commentaries of the Vedas. Uh, the Vedas, uh, the four of them, a series of books that were written thousands of years ago. And the word Veda means to know. And out of these Vedas come the six philosophical systems of India, <clears throat> and they are called sometimes the six insights or the six darshans, insights. Huh? And they are analyses of, shall we say, reality, ultimate reality. Huh? And each of these six systems depends to some degree on the one preceding it. Hmm? So one could say they, they stand on the shoulders of each other, hmm? of one another. Now, um, they say, they, it has been said, that there are three stages to this knowledge of the ultimate. Hmm? Uh, first, we have faith, hmm? whereby one accepts the laws of nature. One accepts, you know, the way it is. And then we come to uh, understanding, which is a, a, a logical conviction uh, of these laws, yeah, mm -hmm. it's more than an acceptance, it's, it's a conviction of them. 
logical conviction, but it's still not yet a certainty. And then, of course, there is the realization, wherein the, in, wherein the individual becomes one with that ultimate. So uh, these six systems uh, fall into these three categories or these three divisions. And we find in the division of faith, you know, the first steps, uh, there is a system called Nyaya. And you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation of these words. It was founded in um, around 550 BC uh, by a man named Gautama. Now, that's not Gautama the Buddha, it's another Gautama. And it is a, a system of logic, and they say it is like a, a methodology of sort of like a science showing how this phenomena came into existence. <coughs> and the second in this category of faith was founded by a man named Kanada <coughs> in the third century BC and is called Vyashika. And this system classifies the world into nine realities and shows how combinations, combinations bring everything into existence. Now, uh, we understand also that in all of these systems, the real founders are not known. The names associated with them are not really the true founders because these uh, systems, the, the, the sutras and the aphorisms, you know, were formulated long before there was any written language. They were handed down from teacher to student and teacher to student. And finally, when it came to put them down on paper, whatever they used for paper in those days, huh? Uh, he was called the founder who did that. And they were originally in the Vedic language, which was a predecessor of Sanskrit. In the second division, we the understanding, we have the Samkhya Yoga, which was founded by Kapila in the 6th century BC. And it also is an account of cosmic evolution. And he has in this system uh, listed 25 categories of the universe, which are produced from two ultimate realities. So this is a dualistic system. Hmm? There, he says, there is spirit, and there is a pre-existing static matter. So we have these two spirit and matter. Hmm. Now, yoga is the other system of this division of understanding, and it is the practical application uh, of the Samkhya. And in it we find the yoga sutras or the yoga aphorisms of Patanjali. The third division, uh, Mimamsa and the Vedanta, the realization. 
wherein one becomes what they call a free soul. Nejivatman. Mimamza was founded somewhere between 600 and 200 BC. And Vedanta was uh, founded uh, somewhere between 500 BC and 200 AD. And it was out of the Vedanta system that around 800 AD comes the great Shankaracharya. Hmm? And it was this man who taught that the world shows great design. And because of its designs, there must be uh, an intelligent agent. Now, not a person, but an intelligent agent, let us call it, huh? Huh? which he called Brahm. Hmm? And it is this intelligent agent which creates and maintains and destroys all things. Things. And this intelligent agent, Shankaracharya taught, has a transcendent and an imminent aspect. And he said that in the transcendent aspect, there is a, a sort of a passive condition where all forms become submerged in the one. And a dissolution is a result of the thing. And the active condition, that's what he said, operates as a support or a ground of all existences. And now this imminent aspect, he said, is a condition which is without any quality, that it is pure. Eminent being in us and pure. And he called it the Atman. There is also a condition with qualities existing as pure matter, which is called Prakrit. <coughs> now these seemingly two exist together. Hmm? And as Brahm assumes infinite varieties, all kinds of forms, yet always remains essentially pure. Hmm? The Atman itself unchanging brings about the changes in all things and it is then Prakrit 
that makes these things seem a reality. Hmm? So you understand it's better than I can do. I don't understand it. But it's just as a way of background of where this, uh, this Kina Upanishad came from. Hmm? Now, your life, what you call your life, huh? Let us say it is your effort, knowingly or unknowingly, it is your effort to actualize the potential of life itself. Hmm? We're always running around, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to fulfill ourselves by being women's livers and we're going to do this, <laughs> right? But what about this life? Life is a thing unto itself. Hmm? To actualize its potential. You think you're the potential of this life? Hmm? Hmm. You know, and if we look at it that way, then we would have uh, uh, one of many reasons of religion. If life is first, and you second, mm -hmm. if life is first, is before birth, it is also after death, then religion has some meaning. Huh? It becomes, you know, in this climate, in this atmosphere of knowing that life is first. Uh, kind of like uh, religion, and it's kind of like uh, we could say it is, um, they have used the word science to uh, evoke or evolve this life, to bring it out, to make it stand out, to make it outstanding, this, this very life out of a birth. Oh, they have called this, then, religion is a science to achieve life. Now, if life is not the first, and it is not the last, and this little span of existence, you know, of this, our standing out for a few moments, you know, be it an insect or bird or plant, or animal, or man, you know. <clears throat> if this, that we know through the senses, you know, this in our short little stay around here, if that's all there is, then religion doesn't make much difference, except maybe for some morals and some ethics and so on. But life is first. Life comes first. Hmm? And life is last. So what is this life living you? Hmm? Now you sit with it. Hmm. 
know this life. To achieve, you know, living it, being it, as it stands, you know, it alone, without any of your, let us say, conditions or qualities interfering. You have to do something. You can't expect it, you know, after living around so many years and then saying, well, I've been around and I've paid my dues and now here comes dessert. Well, you know, that's the way a lot of people look at it. It worked that way. Birth is given you. It's a gift. The face that you wear is one that your mother and father gave you, we could say, or your grandparents. Or, mm -hmm. But then we look at religion, and it can give you a new birth, or better said, a rebirth, to be reborn. Naturally, birth takes some changes. Hmm? Some changes occur in us. And for the moment, let's call it an alchemical change that we go through. And we have the, the little prefix A-L, all, meaning of God. We get from the Middle East, this term. It's not just a chemical change, because, you know, chemical change you can do with drugs, you can do with medicine, and alcohol certainly produces not only hallucinations, but hangovers. Hmm? Chemical changes. Yeah. So alchemical, God chemistry, God changes. Hmm? Now, chemicals cha can change the conditions of the body and of the psyche, which the drugs do. Huh? But alchemical change, this is something else now. It, let us call it a spiritual process of change. Now, in the first birth, you arrive upon the scene and you begin to act out your little drama, you know, all your tendencies. And here you are. Your drama is unfolding. Hmm? You see the tendencies to do this and the tendencies to do that. Two people man and a woman, they met. And there were these two forces. And they created the opportunity for something new to be born. Two seeming opposite forces. Two polarities. And when two polarities meet, see, a new synthesis is achieved.
within each of us, may we also have two polarities. We have male and female. You're both. Everyone is. If you're a man, then the feminine is hidden within you. And if you're a woman, then the male aspect is hidden within you. And so we say with a man that the unconscious is feminine, and with the woman, the unconscious is masculine. And when these two meet, then we have a new synthesis. Something happens. And now with the woman, if she suppresses the male aspect, can she really cope with his world? And if a man suppresses uh, his femininity, can he truly love? You know, whatever he calls love then, if he is hiding from the feminine aspect of himself, whatever he calls love will just be a surface thing. Deep down, it will be something else. It will be something like hatred or fear or guilt or all three. Underneath it, he will hate the woman that he loves. <coughs> we gloss it over so quickly for such a problem, huh? This morning. That's a, quite a problem. Allow your whole house to function. Hmm? Are your emotions imprisoned? Uh, encapsulated, all bent out of shape, we could say. Hmm? Is the mind trapped? Then body movements are imprisoned. The body, you know, the feelings, they become as if they are not part of you, not you. You simply carry them around like a burden. Hmm? At whose behest does the mind think? Who bids the body live? Who makes the tongue to speak? Who is that effulgent being that directs the eye to form and color and the ear to sound? The word effulgent in here is, is, uh, means a radiance or a brilliance. Radiant brilliance, they call it. Huh? Now, to find this, and it is findable, one has to move within. One moves in an inward direction. What makes the mind to move? Of all of your movements, 
of all of your expressions. What is the source? What force in you creates desire? What force impels you to be alive? What force gives you this lust for life, which I hope you have? Hmm? This hidden force in us that is inexhaustible, it goes on and on and on. You know, when a man looks at a woman that he thinks is attractive, or when a woman looks at a man that she thinks is handsome or striking, or we look at a flower that we call beautiful, or we look at a sunset that we call beautiful, what impels you to say, this is beautiful? What throws you outward to it? What throws you out to that object? What is this inner source of all of your activities? Well, in the Upanishads, the answer given is Brahman. Whatever you do, whatever, you are not the doer. The doer is always God. If a man runs after a woman filled with lust, the Upanishads say, this is God. Hmm? And so they have this image of, of Krishna with a flute, you know, and the women. And it is because of this attitude toward life that the Christian missionaries, you know, they had such a difficult time. They couldn't understand this Hindu religion, you know, for even now lust is spiritual. How can this be, you know? But it is because the source is God. Whatever you do with that force, that energy, the God eminent is present. He's moving in it. You know, there's a story in India, they have lots of them over there, you know, that Raman created this world and then he fell in love with it. You know, he created a cow and he falls in love with the cow. So what to do? He becomes the bull. Yeah. Huh? And it's on and on. And this is how the whole creation comes about. He goes on dividing himself, dividing himself into these two polar opposites. The one seemingly becoming the two. Now, reversing this, hmm, the process to realize him, huh, a non-dividing, where the two become the one. And basically, 
the Upanishads are not set up. They're not arrayed against the senses. There are presentations <clears throat> which do deny the senses. They say that uh, the greatest sin is the sense life. And that man has fallen into sense life and therefore he is a sinner. Hmm? And this isn't true. I don't think, I don't know, do you think so? No. The senses cover, therefore they hide reality. Hmm? And this is just simply the way the process operates. This is how we find things. You know, the eyes cannot report the rapidity of energy moving, so it makes a gestalt, you know, it makes a picture an image, and so we have what we call an appearance. It appears thusly to me. And the ear cannot cope with the rapidity of the atmospheric changes, so it makes an image and sound. And all that lives and breathes and moves is in this process. Hmm? There is something that throws us out. We call it projection. Hmm? So we have a state of objectivity. We now, as human beings, we are objectively conscious. We are conscious of things and images, appearances. Hmm? I don't see how anybody can make that a sin. <coughs> Even in the senses, how they operate, you think they're isolated from God? Energy moves. There's nothing else to move. You know, in the old saying, the Father worketh, hitherto and I work. Viewing all of this from that point of view, everything becomes holy. If you can feel with your whole being, you know, your heart, and your mind, and your body, this holiness, then what you call sin just disappears. Hmm? Oh, from whence cometh this, this is sin, and that is sin, and the other sin? You know that it's created by condemnation. You condemn something, and right away it's a bad, and what is bad is a sin. But if everything is holy, what is there to condemn? I have heard people talk as if humanity was just a huge crowd of sinners. There is not anything which you can do 
which has a not or is a not being condemned by someone else. Hmm? Once condemned, you're a sinner. I'm going to be an evangelist someday. <laughs> right? But the Upanishads say that everything is holy because he is all in all, he is the source of all, he is the roots of all, he is the support of all, and we stand in him. If the river looks dirty, so the river's dirty. We have in one river, as I understand it, the sacred river Ganges, huh? It's a sacred river in India. It's dirty. Which part are you going to choose? Hmm? The sacred part or the dirty part? It's one river. The saint and the sinner both have energy. Where does the energy come from? Hmm? The saint and the sinner are both alive. They have life. And the source of you, the life of you, is the source of me. And the source of every other, every other, the so-called saints, you know, they sit and they chant this, uh, Thou art that. I am he. Hmm? And then look around, <coughs> you know, trying to, I am he. Looking around and you see some beggar lying in the gutter and he's drunk. Then are you going to say, I am he, thou art that, why not? Because you condemned? The self is the ear of the ear, the mind of the mind, and the speech of the speech. He is also the breath of the breath and the eye of the eye. Having given up the false identifications of the self with the senses and the mind and knowing the self to be Brahman, the wise on departing this world become immortal. <coughs> Whatever you do, functions of God, and God being all in all, this is now the total functioning, functions of the total.
the total functions in U. When you breathe, what do you do? <clears throat> Nothing. Well, you're sitting there breathing. Are you doing? Are you breathing? <gasps> huh? Are you? What are you doing? Nothing. But you can observe this breathing. Hmm? And you can find out what is going on in this structure, in this process. And so you sit there and you look at it and the breath comes in and the breath goes out. The breath comes in and the breath goes out. It comes and it goes and it comes and it goes. And it doesn't take 10 years to figure that out. No. But if you ponder longer, let us say you even started to meditate a little bit on this breath. Suddenly, there comes a realization that there's something very different about it that you had never noticed before. Of the breath itself, what can you do? Oh, yeah, you can take short breaths or long breaths or fat breaths or thin breaths or deep breaths or shallow breaths, you know? But of the breath itself, what can you do? You can't do anything. <clears throat> if the breath leaves you, what are you going to do about it? <clears throat> if it doesn't come back, what are you going to do about it? If it's gone, it's gone. And it's not coming back, and you're not here anymore. You went with it. Isn't that something? <clears throat> Who is there to do anything about it? Your ego, your thinking, your feelings. So it is said, he breathes. So to get your foot into the door, let us say, of this realization business, huh? or they say, now, you know, get the hair of the tail of the tiger. You know, in the practice of meditation, you learn to focus on the breath. Not the breathing, the breath. If you want to know the dragon, you must first enter his hide, and that's the way to get in. Pretty easy. Breathing. Something I think that we should remember more often than we do that he is the eye of the eye and the ear of the ear, the speech of the speech. When you speak, he speaks. When you listen, if you listen, he listens. He becomes the cow, he becomes the bull, he becomes the speaker, he becomes the listener. A very mysterious little game of hide-and-seek. He's everywhere. You know, so we find also in the Upanishads, not this Kina Upanishad, but in the Isha, we find it is he 
that has gone abroad, that which is bright, bodiless, without scar of imperfection, without sinews, pure, unpierced by evil, the seer, the thinker, the one who becomes everywhere. He is doing everything. Then why do you burden yourselves so unnecessarily? Hmm? You know, he breathes and he comes into existence. He withdraws a breath and existence, you know, our standing out is no more. And whatever is happening, the coming and the going, is happening and everything in between, is happening to the total, the whole. Then what about all this thing about, <clears throat> I'm an individual, I'm an individual, I'm going to do this individual. Hmm? God is one. It's total. Hmm? Consciousness is one. What and where are you when only one is? And I think you all know well enough by now that when we use the words he or him, let it represent the total. It's not a person. Please don't. Hmm? The total, you know, <coughs> that which breathes in you, breathes in the trees, and that which sings in you, sings in the birds, hmm? that which dances in you is in the rivers, in the brooks, you know, and that which speaks in you is like the breeze passing through the trees. Totality. A star shines and witnessing the star. This is a game of hide and seek, huh? A game of totality. The star and the witness, one whole. Once in a while, you shift a little bit, huh? shift a little bit. He is, the total is, I'm not, the total is. And from that point of view, view your world, view your problems and your anguish. Hmm? and your past, and your future. Of course, you're not going to do it when you're happy. But shift and use this other point of view. You know, it might be you could stumble upon a trust and the faith, And that trust and that faith 
is not just the belief of a great controller uh, pulling strings like some engineer or somebody at a switchboard or, you know, whatever. Uh, it's not a managing director. This managing director, I think maybe that's what we'd like to be, and that's so that it becomes part of our thrusting out, it would be called projection. So we've got it up there now as a managing director, and somehow or another, we're very good friends with it. Hmm? We've been in that process for a long, long time. Let's turn it around. Hmm? In a turning around, there's going to be some changes, there'll be psychic changes, and then finally there will be spiritual changes, alchemy at work, huh? where the base metal is turned into gold. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? Hmm. You know, what appears on the surface, you know, it doesn't make much difference. You know, hidden in it, he is. You look out the window. Look out the window. He is the eye that's looking out the window. He is the eye of the eye. And you don't make any effort to figure it out. I can't see my own eyes. How can I see him? You know, there with this thing, huh? Just, you know, he is the eye of the eye. And then just let this tremendous silence happen. The quality of everything changes when you look as if he is looking. Hmm? As if the total is present, which it is. The eyes of totality. Yeah. You know, Jesus, and we read in the uh, Gospel of St. Thomas, he said to his disciples, when you make the two one, this non-division, and when you make the inner as the outer, and when you make the above as the below, and the male and the female into a single one, and when you have eyes, in place of an eye, then you shall enter the kingdom. You know, after um, the World War, <coughs> well, <coughs> in England, there was a little village. And before the war, the Second World War, there was on the crossroads as you came into the town, there was a very beautiful statue of Jesus and he had his hands raised, and there was a little plate uh, on the base of the statue which said, which read, Come unto me. Come unto me. Very beautiful statue. Uh, now, <clears throat> during the war, this statue was destroyed. After the war, the restoration in the village began. Well, it began all over Europe, huh? The people began to lift up their heads a little bit and see that there was still a blue sky with some birds and clouds in it. And in all the rubble, they began to dig around and put things together again. 
their own lives. But in this little village, they remembered this statue. And so they rummaged through all the debris, and they found the fragments. And the statue was restored, except they couldn't find his hands. And so they debated what to do, what they're going to do. <coughs> the village council met, and they decided finally to ask an artist to make new hands. But there was an old man in this village, and very often, very frequently, he was found to be sitting very close to the statue when it was. And he sat in the same place when it was not. And he said to the village council, no, don't make new hands. Let him be without hands. Oh, but the council said, what will we do about the plate underneath? Come on to me. <laughs> and this old man said, change the plate. And you put on this new plate. Come on to me. I have no other hands but yours. In your hands, he's doing. In your eyes, he is seeing. In your body, he is breathing. And in your heart, he is beating. This totality. Okay, we are ready for our little party, I think. <clears throat> and now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I thank you very much for coming. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.